0: All right. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Doing good? It's good to see you all. I want to just give give a quick shout out to all of our Tampa Bay Lightning fans in the room. I want to thank you for the emails that have been coming every time they win. Uh, For those of you who acknowledged what I said last week about how this would go, um, you're welcome. And uh, hopefully they'll continue to play as well as they've been playing. So anyway, we are uh, back in our study through the Epistles of John, uh, our series here called Abiding Light. We're going to be wrapping up 1 John chapter 5 uh, this week and then finishing 1 John chapter 5 next week and again just as a reminder okay and it just it brings my heart joy to be able to say this so i'm in the pulpit today obviously i'm gonna be in the pulpit next week and then the week after that uh jason Kulaski is going to be in the pulpit okay we're gonna hit the pause button and let jason get up here and man he's going to be bringing the word of god uh that morning and man if you've not heard this brother preach uh you're missing a blessing you need to come Okay, so Jason's going to be up preaching. It's going to be great. Um, his wife just gave the nod of affirmation that it is good and right. And so we're going to roll that out. Um, and then the week after that, we're going to come back to our series called Abiding Light. And we're going to spend a week in Second John and then a week in Third John. And then that should uh, wrap up our series from there. Now, our goal uh, for this morning is to really see that the testimony of God, uh, really, excuse me, to see the testimony of God through several witnesses uh, that were given to us by God that ultimately point to the divine nature of God. Now, these witnesses, as John's going to note for us, give us both hope and assurance that we now belong to God. Now, again, we've been saying this word assurance a lot for the past several weeks now, so I'm hoping by this point you're picking on one of the, the subtle underlying themes of 1 John itself, right? Okay, if you're not picking up on it, it's the word assurance, okay? So um, we've been talking about that for the past several weeks. Some of you may say, yeah, pastor, I get it. I've got it. It's time to move on from there. But I want you to kind of take a step back if that's you for a moment. And let's just pay attention to reality for a moment. Because how often today do we hear things and then we become skeptical of them? I mean, think about that for a moment. Some of you may be saying, "No, Pastor, I don't. I'm not skeptical of anything. When I hear something for the first time, man, I believe it." Okay. Well, if that's true of you, then uh, let me ask you some questions this morning. Okay. Um, just real quick, out of curiosity, what are some of your thoughts on the vaccine now that it's been out for the past few months? Right. Some of us were skeptical of that, weren't we? Now, again, I'm not saying you should get the vaccine or you shouldn't get the vaccine, but here's what I noted. Whether you got it or you didn't, all of us, when we heard there was a vaccine coming, we're like, now, wait a minute. Do we really trust what's about to happen on something that hasn't really been researched all that much? Everybody was saying that. Maybe that wasn't you, and you just blindly trusted what was happening. Okay, well, then let me give you another question. How many people in the room today can honestly stand up and say, I fully trust with 100% confidence our federal government? Man, y'all laugh because y'all know. You laugh because you know. We're skeptical, aren't we? We are. They say things and we're like, mm, I don't know about that. Maybe maybe that's, maybe that's too broad of a stroke. So let me bring this down a little bit. How many of us, how many of us can completely say, beyond a shadow of a doubt, uh, with 100% certainty that today I trust our school systems and the way they're being led? It's a little bit closer to home, doesn't it? You see, the reality is we don't trust. We are skeptical, and we hear things from our larger entities. And again, we're just two weeks removed now from uh, the gathering of Southern Baptist churches known as the Southern Baptist Convention, and there were even things that were being said from the convention podium that we as pastors ourselves were skeptical of, and we're like, "Mm, I'm not sure I'm really buying into that. So now, all of a sudden, we find ourselves being skeptical of these larger entities, and all of a sudden, we want proof of what is being said is actually true. I mean, think about it for a moment right now in our country. We are literally living like piranhas in a fish tank at this particular moment. Have you ever seen piranhas in a fish tank before? Now again, I'm not saying go out and buy yourself a piranha or find one and throw it in your home fish tank. That's a bad idea, okay? But have you ever been to the aquarium? And, and I don't know if the Florida Aquarium has this or not. It's been a while since I've been there. But I remember the Georgia Aquarium, they had this massive, I mean, big to me, fish tank, okay? And it was full of piranhas. Like, I mean, you couldn't even, it felt like if you stuck your hand in the tank, which was a dumb idea, you were going to hit one of them. But here's what was so amazing to me about these piranhas is they weren't swimming around. They were completely frozen, and you could just stare at them And their eyes if you were paying attention. They were just darting back and forth like they were freaking out over something. It was the weirdest thing I've ever seen, kind of one of the creepiest things I've ever seen. And it wasn't until I asked a friend of mine who actually worked at the Georgia Aquarium, I said, hey, why are the piranhas just frozen in time, but their eyes are darting around like someone who's had way too much coffee this morning? And they said, well, it's really simple. The only way we can keep them from attacking one another is by overfilling the tank. And so the reason why they're so frozen is because they're paranoid that they will be attacked by the other piranhas in the tank. So they barely breathe, they're completely frozen in time and their eyes are constantly darting back and forth so that they don't make any sudden movement that may launch into an attack. Now I'm gonna go ahead and tell you I think this is exactly how we are living today in Western culture. You see, we are are frozen as Christians right now. We We are waiting to be attacked. In fact, there are many Christians who are out in our cultures today who are waiting and looking for someone to attack. In fact, it's gotten so bad that I think we're afraid to speak up now as Christians. I think we're afraid to disagree with one another for fear of what that person may think or for fear of what that person may say i think we're afraid to stand on capital t truth all of a sudden i mean think about this for a moment when people question the teachings of jesus christ when they question the humanity of jesus or the deity of jesus why is it that when we say these things we see these things being questioned we say nothing we simply say nothing and do nothing why is it because we're afraid Do we sit in silence out of fear? Now, coming to our text this morning, John, I think, would completely disagree with our reasoning. I think John would say to us, wait a minute, we know the truth, and we don't know just any truth. We know capital T truth, and we don't just know the truth, but we now have witnesses to the truth. So why are we sitting on the sideline and not telling people about this truth that we now know today? In fact, John is going to show the local church through our text today that there are actual eyewitnesses to the life, the passion, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I think our reality for this morning, once we read our passages from 1 John chapter 5, if we were being honest with one another, the issue is not the evidence that Jesus is the Son of God, but rather the issue is our sinful and unbelieving heart, because we are the ones who live in fear. Now, again, I love what Charles Spurgeon said. And some of you guys may be wondering, Pastor, you quote Charles Spurgeon a lot. That's because he said a lot of great things. Okay, and they just bear repeating at this point. But here's what he said. He said, Christianity puts forth very lofty claims. Now, to justify such high claims, the gospel ought to produce strong evidence, and it clearly does. It does not lack for external evidences, These are abundant." So as we look at our text today in 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, John is going to speak to the testimony itself at least 10 times in some sort of form or fashion in our text. So we're going to get a chance to look together at the baptism and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ to further see the evidence that Jesus truly is the Son of God. And so my hope for all of us this morning is that we now begin to see and hear from the witnesses that now affirm what can best be called the testimony of God. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would encourage you to join me in 1 John chapter 5. We are going to begin reading in verse 6. And once you have found your place, if you can and you are able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Now again, this is John writing to the local church. John writing in 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. He writes... This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now thanking you for this morning, and Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we have now just to, to spend a few moments in your word. Father, we thank you already for the time that we've had to sing your word, the opportunity we've had to hear your word spoken, to pray your word. And Father, we pray that in these next few moments as we gather, may you be glorified as we seek a better understanding of your truth today. So God, in full reverence to who you are, our holy God, prepare our hearts for your truth. Lord, we ask that you and you alone would be glorified in this time that we have together. Father, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you. And it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, we're going to do something a little bit different today than what we normally do. We're going to actually walk through really more of a word study, and I hope in the midst of that study that we begin to see words that bear witness to the testimony of God itself, okay? In other words, these witnesses are going to provide now the evidence needed in order to prove that God is real and that Jesus himself truly is the Son of God. Now we can already say this about witnesses. We already know from uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 19 that it takes two to three to prove that something is true. And so in this particular moment, John is going to give us not only the two or three witnesses needed, but he's going to give us even more witnesses than we thought were there in order to prove that Jesus is in fact God. And so many of you in this room may say, hey, this is not a struggle for me. I understand that Jesus is the son of God but we need to understand that there are people who are around us there are neighbors there are co-workers there are uh, uh, family members that we have all around us who do not know Jesus as the son of God and they always ask for proof where's the proof where's the proof in fact I heard one scientist say it this way he said that if you can produce for me in this dish the evidence that Jesus is real then do so And so people are always searching for proof. And the reality is this morning, John gives us witnesses who testify to the testimony of God that Jesus is real, that Jesus is true, and that he alone is the Son of God. So look with me in verses 6 through 8 as we see our first witness, which is the water itself. You see, the word water actually appears here four times in these particular verses, and it reminds us of the baptism of Jesus Christ. Now, many scholars that you may read have argued that maybe the water stood for the water that comes from a physical birth, or perhaps it comes from water that came from the side of Jesus when he was pierced. But here's the problem with both of those particular arguments. You see, neither of those arguments are taking into account the historical context of John's writing here in 1 John chapter 5. You see, John was speaking to the local church and he was doing his part in refuting the false teaching that had come into the church that was trying to convince believers that Jesus was filled with a Christ spirit that descended upon this regular man named Jesus at his baptism and then ultimately left him at the point of crucifixion. And so in speaking to the water, in, in desiring to refute this false teaching, John is clearly pointing the local church to the baptism of Jesus Christ. Now we need to pay attention to the baptism of Jesus because it was so important to our narrative that it actually exists in all four Gospels. You can read about it in Matthew chapter 3, Mark 1, Luke 3, or John chapter 1. In fact, it was at The baptism itself, that God himself spoke and what was said of Jesus would affirm and confirm the prophecies written about him in Psalm chapter 2 and again in Isaiah 42, that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, that Jesus alone is King of kings. But as you read Psalm 2 and as you read Isaiah 42 and as it's stated in the Old Testament, Jesus didn't come in as some great knight in Shining armor, ready to lead the people against the Roman Empire. Rather, he came as the servant king. In fact, Jesus came as the sacrificial king. Now, many people would ask at this point if the water speaks to the baptism, and if Jesus lived a perfect life, then why would water be necessary? Why does Jesus in this moment? need to be baptized or why does jesus in this moment through baptism need to be washed from his sins if he was perfect i'm going to go and tell you that's a great question that is a really really good question but if that's your question this morning i want you to think about this many scholars suggest that jesus doesn't belong at a baptism for repentance in the same way he did not belong on a cross for sinners Now, let me unpack that for a moment because that may sound a bit confusing. You see, Jesus in his moment through baptism was actually pointing to his humanity. In other words, he was identifying himself with the sinners that he came to save. So at the moment of his baptism, there were witnesses who were there who then saw the spirit of God descend upon him and then anoint him and state, this Jesus is my son. Listen to him. So clearly the water. The water itself bears witness to the fact that Jesus was not just a mere man. The water itself proves both the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ, and it's the water that bears witness that Jesus alone is the Son of God. John moves from there in verses 6 through 8, and he gives us our second witness. He moves from the water now to the blood. You see, we see in this text that Jesus came by blood. In other words, the blood now represents the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And we actually see the word blood here occur three times in our text. So when you put together the water and the blood, you now see that the work of our savior was initiated at his baptism and ultimately was finished at the blood of the cross. You see, this work being completed through the blood is what leads Jesus to cry out in John 19, verse 30, it is finished. You see, the blood reminds us that Jesus died on the cross as the atoning sacrifices for the sins of the world. But now here's what's interesting to note when you think about the blood of Christ. Notice, notice that as the blood is being spilled and as Jesus is dying, notice what takes place all around him. In fact, you can see it all in Matthew 27. In fact, in Matthew 27, verse 45, we see that darkness covered the land for three hours. In verse 51 of Matthew 27, we then see that the curtain of the temple was split from top to bottom and then there was an earthquake that then happened you then continue to read in verses 52 and 53 and we see that all of a sudden old testament believers were raised from the dead and they began to appear to many as the first fruits or the first signs of the resurrection and oh by the way footnote here okay no this is not one of those walking dead type moments okay All of a sudden, all these people didn't just come out of a tomb and start dancing to Michael Jackson's thriller. That is not what happened. All right, this was not some, yes, it was kind of strange, it was kind of odd, because all of a sudden, dead people were coming back to life, but it wasn't that weird, creepy thing that we see Hollywood wanting to produce for us. No, these people were coming back to life, as crazy as it sounds, to bear witness to who Jesus is and who Jesus was, and they were the first fruits of that very resurrection. In fact, all these things would then lead us to verse 54, where it's there that the Roman centurion, who's witnessed all of this, now claims, truly, this was the Son of God. So we have to ask ourselves this this question this morning. Why are the events of Matthew 27 so important? Because every one of them, every one of these events prove what it is that the centurion says about Jesus. And the reality it is, it all begins with the witness of the water and the blood. You see, as some would suggest and want us to believe, Jesus' death was not some sort of cosmic accident. Jesus' death was not some sort of, whoops, my bad, we just grabbed the wrong guy. That's not what happened in this moment. You see, the blood of Christ gives witness to the divine substitutionary atonement that Jesus makes for sinners like you and me. You see, we need the blood. And I don't know if you're uncomfortable saying the word blood, but if you are, blood, 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 blood. We need to talk about the blood. You see, the blood reminds us that the king of heaven came down. The blood reminds us that not only did he come down, but he reconciled the world to himself. This is what would ultimately lead Paul to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, without the witness of the blood, there is no hope for us as believers. I mean, think about this for a moment. Why believe in Jesus being the son of God if there is no blood pointing us to the fact that he is the son of God? Sin had to be atoned for. The wrath of God had to be appeased. And that is what Jesus accomplished through his blood. This then leads us to what John will refer to as witness number three in verses six through eight. We now see the Spirit. So here John gives us another witness to the testimony of God. This time it's found in the person and the work of the Spirit. Now again, the Spirit is mentioned here three times. And what the Spirit does is the Spirit gives us a consistent and continuous witness that Jesus truly is the Son of God. Now John is going to take this one step further by telling us in our text that the Spirit is The truth. In other words, the Spirit represents all things that are true of God. And we need to pay attention to this particular point because Jesus actually says something similar when we get to John chapter 15, verse 26. He says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Did you hear what Jesus just said? To those who believe, he talks about the Spirit who comes from God the Father. Notice what he's doing here. He's talking about the third part of this triune God, this part of God that was clearly with God and was God from the beginning. This part of God is now going to come and bear witness that Jesus is the Son of God. But then here's the good news that we often breeze over when we read John 15, verse 26. Not only will the Spirit come to bear witness, but notice what Jesus says about him. He comes as a helper to us. You see, we now not only have through the Spirit evidence of who Jesus is or another witness of who Jesus is, but we now have a helper who is on our side. I mean, come on, talk about more affirmation from God. A week ago or two weeks ago, we were talking about love and we were talking about faith and how these are witnesses to the victory that we now have in God. Now, all of a sudden, we get here and we see that we now have the spirit who not only is a witness to who Jesus is, but is also the one who helps us. This is a win-win for all those who believe, okay? The only way I can think of how to compare this for you to understand it, it's like when the Chick-fil-A app came out, okay? Greatest app in America, hands down. I don't care if you have an app that gives you the news. I don't care if you have an app that gives you the weather. The Chick-fil-A app is the greatest app. And let me tell you why. Because it's the app that continues to keep on giving. I mean, it it is the greatest thing in the world to know that you can go to this app, order your food, you're done. Okay, you can either choose to pull into a parking spot and pick it up, and then they come give it to you. And I really, I, they might as well just share the gospel at that point because they're all the sweetest people in the world. Or you're sitting in drive through, and even though the drive through is wrapped around the building eight times, they're still the nicest people in the world. It's the greatest thing ever. But then here's my favorite part about the app. My favorite part is when all of a sudden you wake up on Monday morning, and then your app dings at you if you get a notification and it says, Good news, this Monday you have a free sandwich waiting on you. Let's go. All right, Chick-fil-A is great. So coming back to our text, this is literally what we have in the spirit of God. We have something that is not only from God and of God, so it's already great, but now we have a helper who will be there for us whenever, wherever. How great is that for us as believers? You see, when we come back to our text, we now have three witnesses. We have the water, we have the blood, and we have the spirit, which now meets the mandate that is given to us in Deuteronomy chapter 19 about the witnesses needed in order to establish a testimony. Again, pay attention. Three witnesses, water, blood, and spirit. All of them agree that Jesus is the Messiah, all of them agree that Jesus alone is the Son of God, all of them agree and bear witness to the testimony of God. So it's at this point, as believers today, we need to pause for a moment of reflection for a minute, because if these are the three witnesses of God, and these are the three witnesses that say that Jesus is the Son of God. Then the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is this. If the water affirms it, if the blood affirms it, if the Spirit affirms it, then who do we say that God is? Who do we say that Jesus is? How does our lives this, this morning... I Think back to your past week, okay? A lot of us had a lot of time at home this week because of the weather. In this past week, how have our lives reflected what has already been said about Jesus being the Son of God? Now, you would think by this point in our text that this would be enough for John. I mean, he has met the Old Testament requirement. But that's not how John does things. He's not going to just stop there because he believes faith is a a continual, ever-growing thing. And so John continues. And and in fact, what John's going to do is he's actually going to go a step further and he's going to actually give us two more witnesses that often don't get talked about in this passage. You see, we come to witness number four. And we see this in verse nine and 10. Witness number four is God the Father himself. Now I want you to think about that for a moment, okay? Think about being in a courtroom and all of a sudden you're hearing the testimony of God as presented by witnesses showing that Jesus is the Son of God. We've heard from the water, we've heard from the blood, we've heard from the Spirit, and now all of a sudden John says, and now I would like to call to the witness stand, God the Father himself. That'd be like taking a judge from his seat of judgment and now putting him on the stand to give witness to what's about to happen, okay? The only thing I can equate that to, honestly, when I think about it, is have you ever watched that movie, A Few Good Men? Okay, if you've not seen that movie, you may be okay with life. But if you've seen that movie, that's the the movie where Tom Cruise plays the JAG lawyer and Jack Jack Nicholson's in that movie, Um, and he actually plays a really good bad guy, which is always interesting to me when he does that. But you get to this point where at the end of the movie, the Jack Nicholson character, he's a colonel, actually gets called to the witness stand. And this is actually kind of a big deal moment because he's not just any colonel in the military. He is the colonel that is in charge of all things happening in Guantanamo Bay in Cuba, okay? So this is a, a big deal guy who is well-liked, well-respected by everybody in this movie who's military-related. And so all of a sudden, he's put on the stand. And in fact, the moment gets set up as such a tense moment that before he's even called into the room, one of the other characters pulls uh, Tom Cruise aside, who's a JAG lawyer, pulls him aside and says, listen, if this doesn't go well and you call him to the stand, you will probably be arrested, go to jail, and your law career will be over, okay? So if you don't feel like you've got him in this moment, don't call. This is a big deal kind of moment. And so as we come back to our text here in verses 9 and 10, this is what John is setting up for us. By calling God the Father, this is a big deal for John. This is a big deal for the believers. As if the previous three witnesses weren't enough, John now calls upon the witness of God himself. And so in this particular passage, we now see the testimony of God mentioned again and again. And as many scholars agree, John is now making a lesser to greater argument. We start with the water, we go to the blood, we get the spirit, and now we got God. In fact, John says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God, is greater. You see, by saying this, John is now referencing back to the testimony of men needed in order to fulfill not only Deuteronomy 19, but you can also go back and see it again in Deuteronomy chapter 17 as well. So John is saying, listen, if two or three men are enough to prove that something is true, then how much more should we believe God himself, especially when we have already seen God provide his threefold witness. And so John now tells us that the witness of God is clearly greater in both source and also significance. And so John then tells us that God's testimony is born concerning his son. In other words, what John is admitting at this point is never in the history of the world has God given such a witness to someone else of someone else. And since God has given witness to Jesus, this now demands a response from all of us. You see, John in this moment now suggests that to not believe in Jesus is to not believe in God. And therefore, when you look back at the text, John says that you make God a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Now, I don't know if you've ever understood the weight of what it is that John is saying about god here and how when we say we don't believe in jesus or we don't believe that jesus is who he said he was we don't we don't understand the weight of how we are now saying that god is a liar so john in this particular moment is telling us hey believe in jesus because if you believe in jesus then you accept the testimony of god the father about his son however if you reject jesus then you are calling god a liar And not only are you calling God a liar, but you're now accusing him of the crime of perjury. Think about that for a moment. For the people who say, I don't believe that Jesus is the son of God, they are calling God a liar. Can you feel the weight of that for a moment? I mean, because I've been wrestling with this one all weekend. I mean, I just think about this for a moment. We're talking about God here, calling God a liar saying, God, you're not only just a liar, but man, you lied about everything that you said was going to happen. This whole eternity thing, this is not true, because this thing about Jesus, this is not real. You're talking to the same God who spoke creation into existence. It has been storming in, in Brandon, Florida all weekend. This is the same God who spoke out of the storms to Job. This is the same God, the God who we are now accusing of being a liar. This is the same God who in Isaiah chapter 6 brought Isaiah to his knees and led Isaiah to cry out upon seeing just a reflection of his glory to say, woe is me for I am a man who is unworthy. This is the same God who in Jeremiah chapter 20, Jeremiah calls him the dreaded warrior. That's the God that we today are calling a liar. And so the question I have to ask us this morning is, are you sure you want to make this accusation against God? Now, again, I love what Charles Spurgeon says about this particular point. He says, one word of God ought to sweep away 10,000 words of men. Whether they are philosophers of today or sages of antiquity, there is nothing in God that could lead him to error or make a mistake. And it were blasphemy to suppose that he would mislead us. It were an insult to him such as we may not venture to perpetrate for a moment to suppose that he would willfully mislead his poor creatures by a proclamation of mercy which meant nothing or by presenting to them a Christ who could not redeem them. No, we must believe the witness of God. Now, Charles Spurgeon just said a lot, so let me simplify this for us today. Spurgeon is asking the same question that John is asking. Why would God lie? In fact, the second question, what does God gain by lying about Jesus Christ and who he is? I mean, this makes absolutely no sense. In fact, it makes less of God when we are the ones who call him a liar. In fact, when you look at John chapter 5, verse 37, Jesus, in speaking of God, says, And the Father, the Father who sent me, has himself borne witness about me. You see, even Jesus Christ knew and understood that God the Father would give witness to Jesus being the Son of God. And so at this point, we have to ask ourselves, as a society, as Christians who live amongst non-believers, who are we to now stand against what God has already proclaimed? I mean, why should we stand against God? But here's the reality. We may say, yes, man, I do believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I I stand with the apostles. I I would declare that until my dying breath. Well, okay, well, let me ask you this question What about your actions? What about the sins that we commit? Because you see, it's, in our, it's not just in our words, it's in our actions, it's in our, it's in our sins, according to John, that show us who we say, or shows the world who we say who God is. And so think back on your past week, if you think about your own life, your own words, your own actions, do they point to the fact that Jesus is the son of God and that he is real? Or would they point to the fact that Jesus is actually a liar? And therefore, God is a liar. You see, even God himself bears witness to his own testimony. We move from there and we get to our final witness this morning and it's found in verse 10. And John actually is going to do something incredibly strategic here, okay? Now, he's, he's about to do something that I would tell you doesn't happen much in the Bible. You see, too many times today, people try to enter, inject themselves into the story of the Bible, okay? All right? Here's what I mean by that. When you read the story of David and Goliath, you are not David, Okay? Your sins are not Goliath. That's not a story about how you will overcome. That's a story about the goodness of God and how God will be glorified and it's God who will overcome and no giant will ever stand in his way. Okay? We are just staring at the goodness and the greatness of God at that point. But when we come back to 1 John chapter 5 and we look at verse 10, all of a sudden we now see the witnesses in the story. This is the last witness he gives us, and that witness is you and it's me. This is one of those moments where all of a sudden we see our story intertwined with the scripture. And so here John ties together our outward confession of Jesus Christ to the inner witness that we now have within ourselves. In fact, when you look over to Romans chapter 8 verse 16, we read that the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In other words, our hearts reveal what it is that we believe about God and reveals that it's right for us to believe that Jesus is the son of God who has now given us eternal life. You see, our internal witness reveals the personal presence of God within us. And thus we ourselves, through our words, through our lives, through our actions, as we grow in righteousness, we now give witness to the testimony of God. Now again, pay attention because John's not pointing back to a prior experience in the lives of the people of the local church. Rather, he's leading us to look at the here and the now. And so this morning, as witnesses to the testimony of God, we have to ask ourselves, what do you believe today? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe in the testimony of God? Where is your hope? And then the follow-up question is, if you truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then how do your actions and your words match that? when you go out into the world. You see, for John in the text, our present day testimony provides the assurance in Jesus that God wants us to enjoy and it provides the assurance in the hope that our souls long for, that there's more to life than what we see and that more is Jesus himself. And the beauty of it all is it all happens within us. Now, I told you we were going to get to verse 12 today. We read the verse 12. So I'm going to to actually close with verse 11 and 12 this morning. You see, John actually is going to now turn away from the witnesses to now reminding us of what the testimony of God is. And that testimony of God is the gift of eternal life. Now, here's the beauty of eternal life is that this eternal life, clearly, because it says eternal, it's pretty self-explanatory, there's a never-ending duration. In other words, this is not like your milk sitting in the fridge it's going to expire one day, okay? There's no, this, this never ends, all right? It's not like going, to, going and pulling out your favorite bag of chips only to find out they're stale, all right? It's not that. This is a never-ending duration. So having Jesus as Lord, believing that Jesus is the Son of God, that's what gives us eternal life. And it can be found in no one else, nowhere else, and it cannot be found anywhere else. And so to be here today and to say that you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you're literally saying that you don't have the Son, which now means not having the Son means that you are a walking, talking, dead man. One day your life will expire if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord. But here's the beauty of the Bible. You see, the beauty of the Bible is this, man. We don't simply have to hope here. We don't have to hope that Jesus is the Son of God. We don't even have to start thinking to ourselves that Jesus is the Son of God in order to have eternal life. We know that we have eternal life, when we know what it is that we have in the fact that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is our Savior. This is why John closes by saying, and whoever has the Son has life. You see, that is John's hope, that we would all have the Son, that we would all have the blessing of eternal life. So what about you today? Do you know that you have eternal life? Do you know that you have Jesus as the Son of God? You see, the water, the blood, the Spirit, the Father, they all give witness to who Jesus is. All of them say that Jesus is the Son of God. And so the question for us again is this what about you? What do you say? We've come to that same point where the apostles found themselves with Jesus Christ when he asked them, who do you say that I am? What will our answer be? Because our answer will either mean life or it'll mean death. And John's prayer, John's prayer at this moment was really his passion, that the answer we give to who Jesus is would lead to life, and not simply a life that is temporary, because honestly, this life that we have now, it's fleeting, but rather it is a life that is eternal. So as believers in Christ, we don't have to mourn or be afraid of death. Rather, we have life, and then there is eternal life. And so knowing that being a believer means that we now have eternal life with Christ, do we recognize that this life, this eternal life, was given to us by God, through Christ. And we see it now in the witnesses before us. You see, the water, the blood, the spirit, the father, and even our own lives are all witness to the testimony of God. So the question before us this morning is this. Knowing the testimony of God, Knowing the witnesses that have come forward, who do we now say Jesus is? Let's pray to that end.